Oh, well, welcome to the Urban Uncovered podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Ayat Arabin. I'm a translational neuroscience student and a researcher at University College London. Also want to emphasize that this podcast is my personal goal of bringing zero cost to consumer information to the public. So it's quite separate from my other roles. Now, this very special episode will discuss drug repurposing for glioblastoma, aka brain cancer, and current advances in modes of drug delivery. Now, I'm not no expert myself, so without further ado, uh, to better understand this enigma, uh, I'm being joined by Dr. Ben Newland. Dr. Ben is a lecturer at the University of Cardiff and a pioneer in the field of translational sciences. Dr. Newland has made numerous contributions as a researcher in utilizing nano, micro, and macroscale materials for use in the therapeutic avenue. So yeah, do kindly check out his academic profile and his own website via the links provided in the show notes. Dr. Newland, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. Um, I believe the question kind of begs itself. Um, you know, given your background training in materials sciences, how come you decided to dedicate, you know, the application of your research to use in the brain? Okay, yeah, uh, sure. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I have a background in material science. So as unlike, unlike your, the rest of your guests, uh, I can't prefer, profess to be an expert in neuroscience, right? But the, uh, it was about the time that I started my PhD, um, it was just before that, actually, my mother got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And uh, the, the the group that I joined to to, to undertake my, my PhD, the, the, the supervisor on the first day said, basically, you know, these are the, the, the polymer materials we've got available. And you can pick which direction you want to take this research in. And so it's an amazing opportunity, really. He just says, you know, we'll work with other people across campus to, to make it happen. So, you know, straight away, I thought, well, I definitely want to work on Parkinson's disease. And so this is really where the marriage of, of the material science and the polymer chemistry work uh, fitted with, um, yeah, really what's carried on being my, my interest in, in the brain, even though it's not just Parkinson's research anymore, as obviously we're going to find out about. But um, yeah, that, that's really where it stemmed from. Oh, wow. That's well, that's quite a fascinating uh, story. And um, if you if you were to, you know, dig a little deeper here, your lab specifically, um, they've recently been have been focusing on brain cancer. So can you tell us a little about what brought you into the direction after Parkinson's? Why did you decide to go into that complex avenue? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the so so my group still has a project that's working on Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. uh, and really we've been developing um, small materials for delivering um, cells and delivering proteins and delivering uh, therapeutic drugs okay. uh, to the brain. And really, uh, the the interest in brain cancer stemmed from the the lack of decent therapeutics for uh, uh, brain cancer such as glioblastoma right the you know uh, patients you know just for your audience the the you know uh, you know it's so, it's so unfortunate it's, it's not so common in, ter- in terms of uh, cancers but uh, the prognosis is terrible really you know 12 months 14 months uh, survival um, and that's despite surgical intervention so a surgeon will typically remove uh, as much of the brain tumor as possible, uh, then concurrent radiotherapy and a chemotherapeutic called temozolomide. And so, um, you know, despite our best efforts, we haven't really got 
much better at treating brain cancers over the last 30 years or so. So um, I'd really thought that uh, the materials that we developed could be uh, super useful in, in this aspect in that if a surgeon is going in and, uh, and removing brain tissue, that is an ideal opportunity for us to insert one of our materials there loaded with um, a, a chemotherapeutic or other drugs that we're, we're now exploring. And, you know, the, pro the problem being really is, well, why can't they just take these um, different medications orally is that we have a blood-brain barrier. It's, it's great for keeping our, our brain healthy and stopping um, things that we may have eaten by accident, you know, destroying our, our incredibly complex uh, you know, brains and, and, and spinal cord and everything. So we, we have this blood-brain barrier, which means, but on the downside of that is that it's very difficult for many drugs to pass into the brain uh, tissue. Okay, so I think this idea that we're already going in there and this means that we are bypassing the problems of the blood-brain barrier opens up this huge avenue for repurposing existing drugs, maybe breast cancer drugs or, or, or any other drug that you want to consider for use in brain cancers. And this is not a new idea, it has been done uh, previously, and one one therapeutic has come to markets uh, for local, what we call local delivery, so where you deliver locally to the tumor, and that's called Cliodel or Cliodel. And uh, really, you know, no no disrespect to the those that you know formulated that. It's, it's fantastic that that it's been tried and and, uh, and and things like that. But from a material science perspective, from from a drug delivery perspective is pretty crude. The drugs release very quickly in a, in, a, in a few days, it's out and gone. And these are basically stiff wafers. They're like pills being put around the edge of the of the resection cavity. And it's a stiff material in a soft brain and leads to all sorts of side effects and, and, and problems. So the drug delivery profile isn't great and the material itself isn't great. So I, I just thought that the research that our group was doing uh, already could be a great advancement on that. Okay, wow. Um, that was a quick roundup of <laughs> the most common forms of, you know, treatment to exist and what downfalls do come with them. Um, now, you know, according to a paper I read in, um, in the Journal of Translational Medicine, uh, most common forms of treatment kind of work on targeting the immune cells um, of a patient. And that's how they target the tumor, if I get that correctly. Now, your mode of, uh, you know, drug delivery, does that, does it use the same mechanism or is it different? So I think what you're really referring to there is immunotherapy, and it's a really exciting field where we mm -hmm. can uh, basically uh, train our own immune system to to fight the cancer. Um, the, the cancer's got uh, you know various mechanisms of avoiding this. So um, this is one avenue I want to explore. Uh, and I've got meetings coming up over the coming months with some researchers in Germany about this. But no, to date, it's just standard chemotherapeutics that, um, that uh, you know, work by stopping uh, rapidly dividing cells or interrupting cell division. And so thereby not affecting your neurons in your brain, um, which are, uh, are not dividing um, and therefore attacking the, the tumor cells or actually there are also a subgroup of cells called the, the tumor um, or the glioblastoma sem cells okay so these are also uh, a, 
a population of cells that we really need to get rid of in the brain. So it's not that I'm only using, only uh, interested in using uh, chemotherapeutics, but that's what we've started with so far. We thought that that, you know, it's already a sort of, you know, branching into a new field. You want to be taking something that we know works, that's potent in a dish, and try and take that forward, basically, is, is the idea. But that's not to say uh, I wouldn't be interested in immunotherapies, as I've tried to explain that I'm yeah, really keen to explore that, that route too. All right, that's lovely. So there's a lot of plenty of opportunities for you to be working on that in the future, I guess. And um, please do correct me if, if I am wrong. But uh, so what you're currently focusing on is really investigating various delivery materials and optimizing the formulations for drug delivery, as I suppose. And your work has mainly focused on using highly porous hydrogel scaffolds. Um, uh, I believe they're termed as cryogels. Um, yeah, yeah. Can you, I'm no expert, obviously, so would you be able to please explain what are cryogel scaffolds exactly? Yeah, great. No, I mean, yeah, these, these form the, the, the mainstay of our lab. If I'm honest, they're, they're our mm -hmm. bread and butter and it's where I'm trying to place a lot of our expertise. So um, what are they? <clears throat> so these are the materials that we're using to, to deliver, um, that we originally developed to deliver cells to the brain for the Parkinson's disease project. Then we sort of noticed that uh, and we modified them so that they'd be good at delivering proteins to the brain, things like growth factors, which support neuron survival. OK, all in the Parkinson's field. And then we realized that the same concepts that apply for that uh, apply for drug delivery, too. So that's where that, that came into that. What, what are they? They the easiest way to think of them is like a sponge. OK, so. Um um they're they're like little sponges and and what we, do, we we make them in as you alluded to in your introduction we make them in different sizes some of them are macro scale they can be two or three millimeter in diameter and they can be like a little cylinder of the sponge and all the way down to the smallest ones we make at the moment um, are 20 micrometers in diameter so very very small um spheres basically little balls of sponge and uh, yeah happy to elaborate more if uh, on on the amazing properties that these these uh, give if you like or or if you've got other other questions for me i'm really happy to to talk about these cryogels all day if you've got, if you've got <laughs> and and i'm i'm just as curious would you be able to please elaborate more on their characteristics and what makes them stand out from other current modes of delivery yeah so Great, there we go. That's that's what that's what I was hoping for with it with the, with the question. Because I think they're <laughs> fantastic. The 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 reason they're so uh, interesting is that the, the properties of them are from the macro scale. If you imagine picking up a sponge and squishing it between between your hands, right? It feels very soft. Yet the network that's building that is, it, I wouldn't say it's stiff. It's definitely not stiff, but it's very robust. Okay, so the the easiest way I can try and describe why that's important is obviously because our brains are very soft. Okay, I'm trying to obviously maybe that's not obvious to everyone that hasn't taken apart a human brain before. But if you have ever had the opportunity or an animal brain, you'll realize that they're very soft. It's very soft and squidgy, right? And so a lot of the the delivery. Um, uh, devices that have been developed have been hydrogels and a hydrogel put simply is basically like a jelly just like jelly on the plate or in america uh, americans i think called jello i'm not sure um and so the uh so it, it's like this soft substance but the problem with jelly for example is it is very soft we can make it match the the human brain in terms of its properties so it's well accepted in the brain 
but it will dehydrate. If you leave jelly in the sun, it'll shrink down to a sort of a flat, sticky mess. And if you put water on it again, it won't rehydrate back to the same shape that it originally was made. All right. So they're also quite difficult to inject if they're ones that form once they've been injected into the brain because they rely on temperature and things like this. And definitely people have got better and better at it. But it's that sort of route they're using hydrogels is um, is uh, susceptible to the things that you need. You know, the surgeon would need to be trained in it very well, understand the material and things like that. But the work that we're doing with the cryogels, which are basically, I didn't really explain where the, t the, where the term cryogel comes from, but it's basically a hydrogel that you make and you put it together inside a freezer. Okay, so the cryo comes from the word ice from Greek. Okay, so the ice crystals form uh, within that jelly mix, basically in the freezer. Um, and that means that you get these big pores, these big holes all the way throughout it where the ice crystals were. They're pure water, more pure ice, okay, and so around them the polymer network forms. That means when you defrost it, you get left with, the, with these big pores and things like that. So just like a sponge, on the outside feeling in, if you put it into the brain, what the brain feels macroscopically is a very soft substance. Yeah. All of those um, little um, uh, lines and the bits that are holding the sponge together, all, all, all of the network around that, what we call the struts, is uh, very robust. So they can be picked up with a pair of tweezers, they can be moved about, they can be dried, just like a normal sponge, and then they can be re-wet with the drug. Okay, So it means we can sterilize them and things like that. So it makes it, uh, looking forward to, to clinical use, makes them very easy to use and very practical in, in that aspect. And there's not the reason I get excited is because there's not really many uh, many materials out there which are so you know can be tuned to be so soft. Yet it's remarkable that you can pick them up with a sharp pair of tweezers and they're not falling into bits. If you see what I mean. So that's that's where the, that that dual characteristics of of soft yet robust is what I find interesting. And of course we can change the chemistry to to help suit slow drug release and, and, and things like that. So I've I've actually forgotten where your question started off, but I hope that that, that gives you an idea there. So. Um, I I honestly that, that that's that's terrific. It was exactly what we wanted to hear. So you kind of described the characteristics of this, you know, sponge-like uh, uh, gel. And um, well, why I do get is that it kind of compresses and reshapes um, to take in, you know, the shape that we want, which makes it really easy to inject. And uh, what about, uh, you know, um, compatibility? So you're not, we're not putting this into some, you know, um, science project model or anything we're putting we're injecting this into a human being a human being with a very um you know dreadful um kind of you know uh disease so how do you make sure that it is safe to do so and um, has it been proven before yeah, really, really great question. So first of all, I do want to say that we're very much down on the basic science end of the spectrum, right? So we are, we are looking forward constantly in our design process to say what would be suitable for an end user, right? An eye surgeon and, and going into a human brain. But right now our work is right at the very early stages uh, of this, right? Because it's a new field for us going forward. But what we have done, so the way you would, you know, the, the, the way you would, um, find those questions out of it, is it safe, is of course you don't go straight into a human, you take this first 
um, the cells, you know, give it to cells in a dish and see how the cells respond to that. That's called in vitro experiments. And then you would typically go to in vivo experiments where you um, could put, place them in the brain of an animal and uh, then sacrifice them later to see what the response has been to that. But um, one aspect of our work that's on a completely different note is, is our collaborators um, in Edinburgh, that, uh, uh, led by Professor Anna Williams, who's uh, uh, an expert in multiple sclerosis research. Um, they've uh, um, basically do what's called ex vivo slice culture, where you can take uh, a rodent brain, for example, a rat brain, the, the, our collaborators have uh, basically culture tissue slices or brain tissue slices in a dish, and um, and that means that from from one animal we can get multiple brain slices, and then we can place our materials on and see what the host response to that is. Is it biocompatible? Is it not? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And to work with Edinburgh and also work with another collaborator who's working on human fetal tissue uh, from explants in, in London, in King's College, uh, London. She's uh, uh, Dr. Catherine Long. She uh, has really been helpful for us in answering that question. Are they, are they safe? Are they not? And it turns out that, I mean, we knew we were building them from a very inert polymer, polyethylene glycol. It's pretty well uh, accepted by the body, but you know, it's still until you do the studies, you don't really know what's going on. And, and what we found is, if we change the chemistry very slightly, um, we could make it so that the 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 the, the scaffolds were completely, or these cryogels, um, let's call them sponges, were were completely well tolerated by by the tissue. And so um, uh, that was shown in Edinburgh, Edinburgh to be the case. There, there they were placed next to the tissue. In London, they were placed on the tissue, and it was it was found to have no adverse host response. So um, then. In terms of in vivo studies, the Edinburgh group has gone on to, to deliver different reagents to the brain, um, all in their multiple sclerosis theme of, of research and shown to have no adverse side, of, side effects from the cryogel. So we've got early indications that, that they're good materials and they're well-compatible, but um, obviously uh, that needs a lot of validation work as we move forward. All right. So uh, I, I guess uh, uh, the more you know, the better. So obviously the cryogel microcarriers have been applied to several other um, areas of research which is quite nice but in terms of practicalities um you know what do these cryogel microcarriers actually have greater therapeutic potential um you know in comparison to systematic drug administration because i mean that is kind of the golden standard in a sense when it comes to brain cancer so would you be able to explain this yeah, 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 sure. I mean, the, the, so firstly, as I alluded to, there's this problem of the blood brain barrier. So currently, uh, you know, the, the, the standard of care is to give a drug called temozolomide. Now, if you uh, grow cancer cells in a dish and you give them temozolomide, uh, they're not overly harmed by it. I mean, they are, it depends on the dose. Everything's, you know, it's always comes down to sort of uh, uh, dose responses and things like that. Um, but the, if you give them, uh, there's a wide variety of other chemotherapeutics that you can give them that absolutely hammer them. Uh, they're really, really potent and, and will really destroy uh, both the cancer stem cells, uh, the glioblastoma stem cell population, and the rest of the uh, the tumor, right? We know they're much more potent than temozolomide, but temozolomide is used because it's one of the few that does actually pass the blood-brain barrier. 
So coming back to answering your question, um, you know, could local intervention via the microcarriers be, you know, uh, better than than, than uh, systemic administration? Well, the, the answer lies in, in the fact that you could now target multiple mechanisms by which the cancer cells survive, by which they migrate into the rest of the brain, okay uh they actually switch between the type of cell they are they're incredibly clever they can switch from looking like a neuron to to um, to, to going back into a mode where they will rapidly divide etc so i think by this strategy um it gives us the opportunity to um dose, dose multiple um drugs at once uh also use drugs that can't pass the blood-brain barrier and lastly, but really importantly, is you can give a, a relatively high dose to the tumor without it affecting all your peripheral organs. So there's, there's this problem, obviously, with chemotherapeutics, as you know, as, as we know about in breast cancer, with you know, hair falling out and everything else, is that uh, is that the side effects limits how much dose you can give to the tumor because you know the person's obviously going to become too sick. So if you can deliver them directly to the site, you can deliver a high payload without it affecting your, you know your liver, your kidneys, everything else, right? So mm. I think those are the advantages of it, and I'm really excited. By, by the prospect that, you know, I think this could have a real step change in, in how we treat brain cancers and, and, and other cancers too, for, for that matter, with local therapeutics. But there's a, a long way to go in terms of developing, getting that release right. If you just release all the drug in the first day, for example, you know, that might be great for certain aspects of it. But if you're, if you're really trying to, um, trying to encompass all the different ways that, a, that, that a, a brain cancer cell can survive, I think we need to have a slow release over a long period of time that can, that can target this in multiple different ways. And that's not that's not an easy part to get to get that release right is is the focus of my my uh, two of my phd students at the moment in the lab that's really what they're doing is tailoring these to give longer and better and flatter release um profiles so it's not all just a big burst at the beginning and then all over all right so i i think we we really uh, we really focus a lot on the promising potential of these cryogels and you mentioned one limitation which is how is it that we can systematically deliver the drug and not uh you know s slowly release the drug in a sense uh, are there any other potential barriers to you know uh using this commercially yeah yeah lots uh, a huge amount and uh, this is what we call the sort of the, the translational pathway or you know the, the whole idea of, of, of scaling this up to becoming useful in a human and this is this is something that i have no experience in i've been reading a lot and, and you know attending various workshops and talking with the translational team at cardiff and the the it's, it's something that's really annoying because you think you get something that can work and okay well you know let's push this forward let's go so firstly money okay uh the you know people wonder why the covid um vaccine you know became approved so fast you know tons of money facilitated them to be able to take risks connect up clinical trials all these sort of things right so funding in order to be able to do this is key right that's that's the main limitation that i think i will probably face right 
But along that line is these are new materials, so they're not FDA approved for other other uses. So it's like the Food and Drug Administration in, in the US and, and, and we have the European Medicines Agency here in, 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 uh, uh, in Europe. But, so they're not regulatory approved, mm. uh, should we say. And so that's got to go through that process uh, of that. And so at any point along that way, you know, things that could look promising, uh, can fail in terms of safety, something that we haven't forecasted, for example, or in the, what typically happens is, you know, things will work very well in an animal. And these are studies that we're, we've got planned before Christmas now to test the efficacy of these in, in animal models. But uh, that doesn't translate to to being good in a human. And, and some really clear, obvious um, things that's obvious to, to, to anyone that stops and thinks about it is that the, the rodent brain is very small and the uh, human brain is very large and you know some of these glioblastoma um, you know resections can be really large indeed like a golf ball size right and that's uh, clearly way way bigger than than the models that we use in, in animals so uh, there's lots of um, hurdles along the way that we've got to pass through and then that's that's something that um, I think we've really got to think about and and, and something that I, I worry about here in, in the UK is the US are very, seem to be very, uh, I mean, just look at their turnover rate of new inventions. It's crazy, right, compared to Britain. And we seem quite risk averse and the money that's going to be needed, et cetera. I understand we've got to prove it at each way, but you've also, as an academic, got this pressure to publish as well as you go through. You know, it's unfair if I, if we, if we get this working and my, my PhD student works on this for three years and, you know, he's not allowed to show anything for it at the end and try and get a job at the end so this is also this pressure to publish on the way but you can only do that once you've fully secured your patents on it and, and things like that so there's all these you know there's this whole world that's gonna you know if, if these studies work and show it that, that it's really a useful strategy with these microcarriers i think um there's going to be a whole new world that opens up to me that's uh, going to be long and, and difficult but i i think it needs to be done if we're going to uh, make a difference in patients lives yeah i mean uh, honestly doctor the the work you're doing is really challenging and i highly admire the fact that you went for it when so many so many scientists tend to avoid this avenue because it's very underfunded and um, uh, yeah, really like the, the commercial sector kind of neglects it in a sense. Um, but um, what, what do you think? Okay, so focusing on translational work, what, what role does it play in addressing the challenges we face in cancer research? Well, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, without translation, to the clinic you know there's so i, I see I'm, I'm starting to see two separate se sections of work so some some of the work that we've done in ms for example is is allowed those researchers in edinburgh to understand the mechanism by by which ms um uh, it, it works basically or the effects of ms right and so i think there's the understanding basic biology which is free and open to publishing off you go you know get get a new finding publish that and then researchers can use that knowledge to develop therapeutics right and i see that as very much the you know super critical to be well funded and and and, and, and the basic science end of things or blue skies research or however you want to call it that we're just we're just finding out things about how our brain works and how disease uh, uh, happens etc cetera, etc cetera. but then the translational part of it is uh, obviously really really key to get right and and, and I think 
that you know the UK knows this. There's a lot of funding initiatives now that are coming in that are uh, that are based around you know we really want to see a product out of this. So which ones are promising, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, yeah, really the, the 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 translation aspect of it is really key. And I think really uh, teaming people up with the full. Uh, what can we say that the, uh, the, the, the full amount of people that are needed as in I need to be talking with end users surgeons are you would you be happy to use this uh, companies you know would you invest in this etc etc um, because without with, you know and then regulation at the same time there's all these different aspects that need to come together in order to make this work so that's why I feel very uh, bad at the beginning where I slaked the the Gliadel wafer as not being particularly great. Those 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 guys did something that wasn't done before, and and they they got it out there and they, they you know they got it working. It doesn't work particularly well and things like that, but that's a real big milestone that I've I've never achieved. So I think um, yeah, it, it, without without that forward planning, just publishing papers on the material itself and the delivery and things like that will never. Uh, will never result in actually changing uh, patients' lives. I, I, sorry, not never, but it's put, it's kicking the can down the road in terms of someone else has then got to make a, an even newer inventive step in order to, show, to be able to patent it. So actually publishing the paper can be damaging in terms of the, the, the translation of that research, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, I really admire the fact that you you did spill out the ugly truth. <laughs> that is exactly what is happening. And uh, yeah, I believe you. I think I guess it's all the, the, the beauty of translational work is that, you know, it kind of encourages multidisciplinary kind of collaborations. And that's what's going to lead it to move forward and for us to be able to find innovative, you know, solutions uh, to these challenges that we're facing. Um, you know, Doctor, on an end note, where do you hope to see your future going, so, uh, your research going in the future? So within five years. Five years. Okay. That's interesting because I, yeah, I, I want to tell you a little bit about what getting to here really and that, that when I was doing my PhD I saw a lot of groups that just you know took government funding uh, they you know played about they made some new materials and they published them and that was the, the whole process seemed to be improving mm. the, the PICV and that allowed to get more grants and things like that and, and, and I really wanted to be able to make say that I've I've made an you know an, uh, an impact uh, within ten years or I'm I'm getting out of here right I don't want to just keep taking government money and it's a little bit embarrassing looking back on that because uh, I guess my 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 ten years is is running out pretty soon right uh, from when I from when I said that next year in fact um, but um, on the on the plus side the the spillover effects of trying to aim for a therapeutic uh, delivery system means that actually now I have many, um, you know, a lot of groups now around the world that are using these materials for um, different applications um, and understanding basic biology. So I, I've kind of, you know, I, I guess you just change the change the goalpost when you get there, don't you? But I've kind of allowed myself to to think that I'm doing all right by providing these other clever researchers and the, these other the great um, neuroscientists around around the world uh, use these materials for 
for their research and they're asking for more and saying, you know, can I, can you modify it to do this? Can it do that? Uh, this is great. We're now growing cells on these. We can understand the interaction between neurons and astrocytes and, and things like that. Uh, that wouldn't have come about because of that. So uh, for the next five years, um, I think we need to gain concrete data on whether this really holds promise in animal models. But I think uh, for, for glioblastoma work, should I say, so on the glioblastoma side, does it work or does it not? We need to think a little bit differently about the way we interpret animal model data. There's a lot of, we, we conducted a systematic rapid review or systematic review, should I say, and meta-analyses recently of, of all the other people's work in this field. And there are a lot of studies that suggest, yep, these, these sort of local interventions can work. They can cure the animal model and off you go. But curing the model is not actually as important as, as understanding where does a drug go how long does it last how deep does it penetrate the tissue i think these you know these are all things that can then be related to the the, the human problem rather than just um, did the animal survive or not okay uh, because we know our brain cancers are far more complicated than our models uh, are so uh, definitely you know i'm hoping over the next couple of years to get good data on that um and yeah I, I really yeah i just uh i i hope that my materials can be, continue to be used by other labs to find out um interesting uh basic biology and so yeah the, this I, I coming back to parkinson's as well i've got a i've got a, a project idea on the go uh for how we can improve the survival of cells post-transplantation to the brain and I'm dead keen to, to get that started and going and really have a look at that in depth. But that's going to need recruiting new members to my team, building up a, a bigger lab. You know, uh, I need to get more students and postdocs in. And the ultimate driver of all that is funding. I've got to get better at grant writing, <laughs> as, as we all do in research. So. Oh, wow. Um... I, I really look up to you, and I believe a lot of the students that are listening to this are thinking the same. It's it's amazing. You just mentioned ten, a ten year benchmark. Um, you, so ten years and how many months? Well, sorry. So yeah, I think it was two thousand and three. I guess I, I finished my PhD. It must have been in April. I think it was. Oh wow! Uh, the, the only reason I I know it well is often grants. You, you know, would have a within two years of your PhD or within five or seven oh. years. So I'm now, I guess, no longer. Uh, I always think of myself as a student and pretty yeah. much still. I feel like an early career researcher, but I guess uh, time's passing and I'm getting a bit more wrinkly. And uh, so, no, I'm not no longer uh, an early career researcher, I suppose. But uh, yeah, and 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 so yeah, I'm, I'm I, I guess the 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 fruits of my labour have really come out by collaboration. That uh, I going to neuroscience conferences, going to transplantation conferences, and chatting with people, and you know, and the, the the best collaborations come when they say, "I really need to be able to do this. Could could your material do that, please?" And if the answer is yes, then that's really great. It's not like a forced thing where, "Oh, please, can you use it to show this for me for that?" It's where they've got a real need, and I can supply something that doesn't exist on on the market, and they're happy with it, and so potentially in five years another thing i've been toying with is is could i commercialize these for research purposes only okay so researchers can use them as a tool 
for their neuroscience applications. And um, and, and that's something that I, I'm thinking about. And there, there are far fewer barriers to commercialization because there's no regulatory approval, or very little, should I say, to, to go through with that. So that might also be a, a good avenue to take my research. Okay, yeah, I, I, think, I think the way you're thinking about it makes a lot of sense because um, I, if I was to speak of like my experience, um, I'm very new. Uh, I've only had experience with collagen hydrogels, and let's just say they're not the, the nicest thing. <laughs> if, yeah. If they, yeah um, they, they did uh, funny enough, just to interrupt you, I, I my my PhD was using collagen hydrogels. Oh, look at that! Trying, <laughs> when I was trying to say some of the problems about you know premature gelation and things like that, where yeah. they gel too quickly at the wrong temperature, or, and you, yeah. So uh, sorry, go on. I shouldn't interrupt you. But go on. Yeah. Oh no no no, not at all. Um, but you, I agree with everything you mentioned about they're quite sensitive and you know when you're using when you're using um modes of drug delivery they're supposed to serve you and not kind of tackle your work and uh you know make it more complicated so i think what you're doing is truly amazing and the fact that you're willing to share it with everyone in your field uh it's quite rare nowadays <laughs> i'm just <Yeah>. saying <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. They're, they're really, uh, really trying to focus on simple chemistries that make them reproducible. Mm. A lot of the work I did during my postdoc, we, it was actually my my wife, uh, Heike, was, uh, well, she wasn't my wife then, but uh, we were working together and, and she was working away on a different type of cryogels that were, were made from, um, yeah, made with heparin, basically, from porcine heparin. And just the batch-to-batch variability, for some reason, they would work in winter and not in summer, or vice versa, I can't remember which way around. But, you know, whereas I wanted something that was super reproducible for making, means that they're always exactly the same each time we're making them that's why they're fully synthetic and so we we now mimic the properties of heparin in our materials for slow releasing of, of proteins and things like that um wanted them to be easy to make and easy to use and so because of that they're actually quite basic there's no they're not going to win a win a prize for you know the best fancy diagram of this bit coming off and then that bit um joining on and, and those sort of things it's, it's really quite basic chemistry um, but it's reproducible and hopefully, like you said, it should be easy for the end user to use. Definitely. I mean, speaking of chemistry, there, there's this uh, very lame chemist joke, and it's like, it goes like, if you're, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. So it's like... <laughs> 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 so yeah you might not win a Nobel prize but you're, you're doing terrific work and you're contributing a lot and for that we're very grateful thank you thank you and again can we ask um we're taking way too much of your time but um might as well ask uh so we've got a lot of you know um early career researchers here and uh we would just like to know what advice would you give you know a researcher at the early stages um of their career and what advice do you think they should ignore specifically okay i mean it's it's one of those things, yeah, good, good question. It's really nice to look back on and think uh, what bits worked well for me and, and what didn't go so well and things like that. And I've, I'm actually thinking of trying to make a, um, uh, you know, some sort of small YouTube video on this because I think it's, it's something that I really benefited from in my PhD was, um, <coughs> uh, sorry, a concept called um, slow motion multitasking. And, I, and I, I, I really, sorry, I forgot. It was, I'm sure it was in a TED lecture that I saw it, but I didn't know I was doing it until afterwards. And that's the sort of the, the, the phrase for it, where you basically, um, 
you, you think of yourself as in in a lab where you've got all these amazing this amazing sorry <coughs> you've got all this amazing equipment and um you your supervisor doesn't really know what you do on a day-to-day -day, um level so have a bit of freedom to go off on a side project and yeah and make sure that there's I mean, like youth with your your podcast right you you really enjoy making this uh, and and when you go off on a side project you feel the ownership of that and you start to enjoy it probably more than your your main project now i have students in the lab and i don't want them particularly wasting time going off and doing something else right but it's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission right go go off and if you think you've developed you know your something you know, in your, your research that you're doing I don't know, but maybe I want to go and have a look at these receptors instead or something like that. As long as it's not taking too much of your time, of your main time, I reckon those side projects have been really useful for me in, in many ways and, and certainly the, the ability to publish with them. So if you, uh, for, for example, I, I built a gene vector, so that's uh, basically an artificial virus while I was doing my PhD and um, you know, we showed it worked and, and, and a load of other stuff. But then but in the background, sort of secretly, I've been trying them on a total different subsection of cells, on neural cells, because I was interested in the brain and things like that. And, and you know, I supervise, you know, I'm sure he's fine with it now, but they didn't really know, didn't really question. I sort of presented it sort of as a as a finished nearly finished article and here you go how about this and 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 i think that allowed me to publish a lot more during my phd than if i'd just gone down one route and that's not to say go behind your supervisor's back it's horrible isn't it i sound terrible but the do something that you're interested in as well <coughs> make use of the great lab if you're in a great lab hopefully that, that you've got and um i think the other thing of the obvious um plus of that is not putting all your eggs in one basket there's a lot of PhDs, you know, my, one of my students, you know, and he's just finishing his PhD and, you know, poor guy has been trying to release glucose, um, for three years and glucose is a really difficult molecule to, mm. uh, to try and release slowly. And, you know, <coughs> is it, he, he did some side projects and some other little things that, that and, and that's really great for him. It's made his, his, uh, PhD um better it's made his employability afterwards better with these papers that will come out from it and yeah i think it's have a go and you you might know more than your supervisor as well who probably do <laughs> so uh, feel free to explore those areas and, <laughs> and have some fun with it Oh wow! I, I i yeah i think i think uh i think the the, the idea of kind of Investing in side projects is not something you hear every day. Usually, you're told to have focal attention on onto your project and just like. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I've probably gone against all that. You've gone against the odds. Maybe that's right. Definitely don't scatter too far. I, I went through with my postdoc yes. time. So in my PhD time, I did a lot of things that. Uh, you know, I, I I I chat with my old supervisor now, and, and I'm sure he's fully aware that we didn't always see eye to eye on everything, right? <laughs> and and I had some really great co-supervisors too, and it was it was just an interesting mix of having really good stuff. And what he did provide me with was um, a great learning environment and things like that. So I really took use of that and, and did these side projects. And then in my uh, postdoc, I, I I had a Wellcome Trust fellowship. So I was really lucky. I went uh, off to Germany with that. And uh, there I went to a really well-funded group uh, headed by Professor Carsten Werner. And 
uh, there I could kind of I had no limitations. It was it was the best four years of my research. Time. <laughs> I'm dreaming about this. I'm going to make that. I'm going to do these things. Fantastic. Really, really good. Sky's the limit. There, there it had gone too wide. I had to then start to think. Right, I've got to cut this project mm. because I'm going to have ten projects that started. Nothing's going to finish. So definitely, there was a flip side to going. You know, you've got to have a good aim and why you're doing it. And really, I guess fairly early on after I published my first paper, I, I realized the sort of format that they they fit in and, you know, let's try and replicate that in a few other areas, I suppose. But yeah, and I definitely went a bit a bit off the charts during my, my, my postdoc and had to rein things in a bit. But I think now as I get older, I need to inject a bit more of that postdoc time back into things. Um, I'm getting too concerned about, oh, well, that won't work for this. So that, mm, instead of just going out and having a go and seeing. So uh, yeah. I gotta try and get a bit more useful again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think I think a good balance, a really fine balance, is what you're kind of uh, indicating, hinting to, is that do pursue further like side projects, but at the same time, know at the end of the day what truly matters and why is it that you're doing what you're doing. So um, yeah, definitely know why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, it's it can be frustrating as a supervisor when you know someone's gone off and spent a month doing something, oh, but, but you haven't really thought <laughs> that through, had you? So, uh, so there are there are, yeah, there are two sides to the, to the same same kind. Oh well, <laughs> well, Dr. Newland, thank you so much for your time um, and for all the work you've been doing. Honestly, um, I, we really look up to you. And um, uh, for all you listeners out there, please feel free to check out his academic profile and um, uh, feel free to reach out on Twitter as well because I provided that in the show notes as mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, is there any last words you'd like to leave us with before we end this? Uh, no, not really. Just to say thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank anytime. You. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And for all you listeners out there, please feel free to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast show. Uh, and thank you again for listening. And more importantly, thank you for your interest in science. Goodbye.